uh, continuing from last week, verses 10 through 20. It was these passages that we looked at uh, throughout this whole week at our vacation Bible school. And as I uh, was blessed with the opportunity to teach the children through these passages on a daily basis, I kept thinking, this is so simple. The whole point of what Paul teaches us, it's so simple to grasp, so simple to understand But yet we recognize how difficult it is actually to fulfill what Paul tells us to do here. And how often we fall short of following through with God's word. As Luther said, we are debtors. We are in need of God's grace. And so let us hear this word of God. Beginning in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak." This is the word of God, and may he bless the reading of it. What am I supposed to do in the Christian life? Well, Paul just told us. It's that simple. You put on the armor of God, and you be strong in the Lord. That's what we are to do in our Christian life. It seems really simple in terms of understanding, but as we live our Christian life, we realize just how difficult it is, isn't it? Last week, we looked at the reality that we are in the midst of a battle. And that our enemy is really not mankind, but we see the demonic forces that are behind mankind that brings about our enemies that we face. I think it's important to consider the context in which Paul's writing this. Paul was a man that was no stranger to conflict himself. Paul was in Rome. He was under arrest. And we actually find him in Acts chapter 28, verse 16, with this description. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Paul's imprisonment in this first imprisonment, it wasn't a walk in the park, but it also wasn't a brutal imprisonment. He had an apartment that he was able to stay in, and he was chained to a soldier 24-7. Now, oftentimes... If you have heard sermons preached on Ephesians, that becomes the focal point of the sermon 
is that Paul is attached to a Roman soldier. He's looking at the Roman soldier. He's looking at his armor. And Paul then writes, this is the armor of God. Well, it's somewhat true. He was attached to a soldier. And perhaps as he's looking to the armor of God, maybe that brings him reminding or a remembrance of the armor that we have, but actually every piece of armor that Paul describes isn't necessarily from a Roman soldier, but is rooted in promises that God has given us in the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Isaiah. And so as we look at this armor of God, we will see that Paul is just simply reiterating what we're told of the armor that we have as Christians uh, from the Old Testament. And he tells us, by, by telling us that we need to put this armor on, or we need to take up this armor. And so one thing that we have to understand that's key for interpreting these passages is the reality of putting on the armor. That is part of the Christian life. In fact, in the book of Ephesians, beginning in chapter 4, then going into chapter 5, and then again in chapter 6, Paul continually tells the church of Ephesus, you need to put these things on. You need to put on the new image that is created in Christ on. You need to put on kindness. You need to put on tenderness. But you need to take off, and it's using that clothing metaphor, you need to take off things that represent the old self And so putting on armor and the armor of faith that we're given from Christ to fight this war that we are in the midst of, it's the same thing as saying, put on the new life you've been given in Christ. How often are we to do that? How often are we to be putting on that new self? How often are we to be putting on that armor? Is it just when the the battle is at its most intense point? When the battle's raging at its fiercest time? Or is this actually just what the Christian life is? Let me tell you, this is what the Christian life is, is the battle. As long as we live here, in this age, in this world, we are to be putting on the new self created after the image of God and in the likeness of Christ. And part of that is putting on the spiritual armor that we're told. He tells us to stand, verse 14, therefore. That's an imperative, and that imperative controls the rest of this passage. And that idea of standing is one that's standing because he's preparing to go into battle. Paul has already unmasked the enemy that we face. Demonic, satanic, that is the enemy. Jesus makes this very clear as well. When Jesus says in in John chapter 18, verse 36, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. So we see that there's this, there's this spiritual battle that we will be facing. So when we think of armor, it's not because we're going to go and attack the Philistines literally, 
but we are actually go and take the gospel to the Philistines. That's what the battle is. And so we're to stand, that is the imperative that controls the rest of the passage, is that we are commanded by God to fight in this battle. And when God commands us to stand, He makes it possible to stand, He equips us to stand, He gives us the resources to stand, and we stand solely and only by His grace. Now, Paul's going to deal with the resources of how we stand. What are those resources that help us? Let me ask it another way to put it in context of that spiritual battle is how do I deal with temptation? How do I deal with suffering in this life? How do I deal with adversity? How do I deal with living life in this fallen, broken world? That encompasses everything, right? Well, here's the answer. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. This imagery likely comes from Isaiah. And I'll be going back and forth to Isaiah In verse 5 of Isaiah 11, we read, This righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and the faithfulness the belt of his loins. And so Paul is drawing upon this truth of God, that Christ himself, this is a messianic portion of Isaiah, that Christ himself was armed with the belt of truth, which means this, That all that is available to us, or that was available to Christ, is available to us as Christians that are in Christ. What is available to Christ is available to the believer. Now the text says this is fastened on, or having fastened on. Some translation says girding your loins. It's the idea of being dressed for action. Let's take that metaphor out. A belt gives you freedom to move, doesn't it? Without a belt, you're you're not free to move, but you're constantly holding your pants up. You're not able to move. But this idea of having fastened on, it's, it's the idea of preparing for the reality of the battle that we have. So think of it like this, is how you might dress to go in your backyard, is that different than how you will dress to go, say, to the store or go to an important meeting or how you go to church? You, you, you actually are, are very intentional how you dress for the situation that you find yourself in. It's no problem to go in flip-flops in the backyard and do some work. But when you go to the, a, a special meeting or perhaps you go to church, you might dress a little bit differently. And why is that? Because you're preparing for the place that you're going. So what is this? This is a call to begin by preparing ourselves for the battle. And we have to ask this question once again, when does this battle take place? Always. Constantly. Continually until Christ returns. There's not a moment that you're not in the battle. 
So we need to be continually fastening on the belt of truth. And the belt of truth is simply this, is knowing and using the truth of one's union with Christ. You know what, in, in the New Testament, we're not called Christians. Our description of who we are is this. It's with the preposition in. We are in Christ. We are in union with Christ. The belt of truth is knowing that we are in union with Christ. And what does that mean? It means that simply, I am a child of God. I am chosen by the Father, given to the Son, that He may pay the penalty for my sins, and that I am sealed by the Holy Spirit. I have been made a new creation. I am a child of God. I'm changed because of God. I'm a recipient of God's grace that I did not deserve. And because of that, I no longer walk in darkness. I no longer walk in the darkness and lies of this world. But I have been called to His marvelous light. And yes, while we face struggles here in this life, that's why we need to put on the belt of truth. We realize that we are different we realize that we have been changed. Let me tell you how you can shortchange this. How you can short-circuit this reality is not living a life consistent with the truth of God. If we're to put on the belt of truth, we need to live, live consistently with what we say we believe. Notice... What Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25, and using that metaphor of putting away, putting off, and sticking with that metaphor of putting on. So we put on the belt of truth, but verse 25 of chapter 4, therefore having put away falsehood. In other words, there's a call to live obediently to the Word of God, the truth that we proclaim when we proclaim Christ and to say that we know the truth and that we know Christ the truth, we are to no longer walk in falsehood because we have been changed. So when we embrace falsehood, what we do is we actually have removed the belt of truth. And what is the belt of truth for? It's for our protection. It's our armor. It's what God has given us. So when we embrace deception, when we embrace lies, when we embrace deceit, when we walk in a way that is, is out of conjunction with God's Word, what we do is we have disarmed ourselves and we make ourselves susceptible to the enemy. Do you get that? When we walk inconsistently with the Word of God, we have disarmed ourselves and we have made ourselves susceptible to the enemy's attacks. If you were going into war, a physical battle, would you ever think about doing something that would make you susceptible to death? No. That is the frame of mind we must be in as Christians, is this is a matter of life and death. That this armor is just not just a cute little metaphor that's helpful and helps us get through the day, but this is the truth of God's Word, what we need to put on daily as if we are going into battle. Because why? We're going into battle. We're in battle. We can never shortchange that by living with falsehoods. 
The second piece of armor that he gives us is putting on the breastplate of righteousness. And again, the, the language is, is likely from Isaiah. In a couple places in Isaiah, let me just read Isaiah for you. I already read this passage, but I want to read it again. And it's Isaiah 11, in verse 5, Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. It's that idea of putting on righteousness. And then in Isaiah 59, in verse 17, we read something the same. He put on righteousness as a breastplate. Now what was going on in Isaiah that Isaiah would write this? Well, specifically, Israel had failed to do justice, had, to, had failed to act righteously, had failed to love God and to love neighbor. So God straps on the plate, breastplate of righteousness himself to show justice in Israel. So what does it mean to strap on the breastplate of righteousness is this, is we are called to be just in our skills in all areas. We are called to be a people of justice. And here's the reality. God is just. And God himself will be just and judge on the final day. But we are to act justly to one another. We are to act justly in our actions. What does it mean to have equal skills? I have to have the same expectations upon myself as I have upon you. It means I'm not to show anyone with favor. It means that I can't, I can't change things in favor of myself or favor of those that I might perhaps like more, but it has to be a treatment of equality with all people. That's what it means to have just skills. And that's what God was chastising Israel for, that there was an injustice taking place in Israel. And so God himself straps on the breastplate of righteousness to show justice. And we're to model that. And here's what we have to understand. This is a call to living a certain way. I loved how uh, the, the VBS material said, think of it as, as right, the word righteousness, the breastplate of righteousness. They said in the teaching material, the breastplate of what's right, doing that which is right. That's very simple to understand. That's part of our armor in this war we're in, is doing that which is right. So many are, are very quick to point out that this is purely an ethical thing. And what do I mean by that? Is the breastplate of righteousness only has to do with doing right. And that is certainly part of it. But that can't be all of it. What's interesting is the word righteousness in Ephesians is always linked to truth. And so there's that aspect of this righteous living and truthful living, that ethical living, doing what is right. But however, we can't understand 
Our doing what is right apart from the fact that we have been made righteous. See, you cannot separate what's called the imputed righteousness of Christ from your righteous living. Because what does the scripture tell us about our righteous deeds? All our righteous deeds are like polluted rags. In other words, the idea of strapping on the breastplate of righteousness or the breastplate of doing right is impossible unless you have received the imputed righteousness of Christ. Our righteousness, our goodness, our doing what is right doesn't come from within me, but it comes from within me because of Christ in me. Christ is the engine by His Spirit working in us to produce right. All of our righteousness comes from Christ. None of it comes from ourself. Paul makes it so clear when he says in Romans chapter 6, verse 22, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end is eternal life. Our righteousness comes from Christ, but so does our right living. In other words, there's no aspect of the Christian life that we can pat ourselves on the back and say, I did that. No, your salvation is a, uh, a sovereign work of God. And your sanctification is a sovereign work of God. And your glorification is a sovereign work of God. From beginning to end, what we experience is a sovereign work of God's grace in our lives. So doing right is a sovereign work of God. But yet we're told here, in the mystery of sanctification, that we're to put on the breastplate of right. We're to put on the breastplate of righteousness. So how we understand this is that it is Christ working in us, which means to put on this breastplate of righteousness always puts us on our knees before our Heavenly Father asking for grace and for mercy that we might stand in the midst of the battle that we find ourselves in. You think of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. You can't understand doing right apart from the fruit of the Spirit. You notice it's, it's not the fruit of the guy that was trying really hard. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's a work of the Spirit in our lives for those that are in union with Christ. Have you by faith received the righteousness of Christ imputed to you? Have you by faith trusted in our righteous King? I loved the illustration that Rachel did where she took a, a, a shirt that was dirty and put it on one of the kids. It was a picture of all of our sin. Such a beautiful illustration. You see it in Zechariah of the priest's dirty clothes. And then she took a, a brand new white cleaning sh shirt, a clean shirt and put it over the child. That's receiving the righteousness of Christ. We didn't clean ourselves. 
We didn't even ask to be clean. It's a sovereign work of God in our lives. And as a result of having on a clean shirt, because of Christ in us, there's a righteousness that flows from us. We have to understand when we treat others unjustly, when we ignore God's word for our lives, we remove the breastplate of righteousness from us. Every time we look at God's word and do the opposite, we've taken off our protection and our vital organs are exposed to the enemy to slaughter us. Let me just ask again, would you ever go into a physical battle and remove your armor so that you might be killed by the enemy? You know, see, I think that the problem we face so often is we don't believe that Satan's real. We don't believe that demons in a demonic world exist out there and that Satan truly is a liar and a murderer and he wants to kill you. He wants you to fail. We're in a battle that's far fiercer than any physical battle we'll ever face. Because our enemy is more powerful than any enemy we'll face here on earth. But we're called to be strong in the Lord, who is our omnipotent God, who is all-powerful and is the creator, even the creator of Satan. We're next told... Putting shoes for your feet, verse 15, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. This is a wonderful reality of the battle we're in, of our armor. And while not one armor is more important than another armor, I think that this is probably, I think in a practical sense, our most useful piece of armor that we can have. And all of them are dependent upon one another. In Isaiah 52, verse 7, it says this, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. And when you get to to Romans chapter 10, Paul says that that is the proclamation of the gospel. And so when we are putting on the shoes of, of peace and having our feet ready with these shoes, it's, it's, it's not necessarily the picture of shoes that a soldier would wear, but it's preparing, literally it says, shoe your feet with preparation, meaning this is the armor, is the readiness, the preparation to share the gospel to the nations. Let me ask you, very poignantly, are you ready to go and share the gospel? Do you ever think that in the battle we're in, part of our, not only protection, but the offense is this, is the gospel itself? Are we ready when we get up in the morning to wage war to share the gospel? What, what is the gospel? Anytime I'm part of an ordination council, I always ask this question. You're at a bus stop. 
You're sitting next to someone you've never met. The bus is coming. You've got it in a minute. Give them the gospel. What is it? Let me ask you, if I asked you that question, if someone asked you that question, that was you in the elevator sitting at the bus stop. That is you on the airplane next to someone, and you've got a minute to share the gospel. Are you prepared to do that? We need to be prepared to do that. Actually, we're commanded here to prepare ourselves for the gospel that brings peace. Why is sharing the gospel included as part of our armor? Well, the reality is this is sin is the cause of all of our problems, and the gospel is the only thing that frees people from sin. The law doesn't free you from sin. It makes you more aware of your sin and your transgressions. So seeing more laws passed wouldn't be the solution. Telling people what to do wouldn't be the solution. Again, that's just simply law, law, law. The gospel's the only thing that sets people free from their transgressions. The gospel's the only thing that sets us free from our sinfulness. It is the only thing that brings true and lasting truth and peace to the soul. So what's Paul's command here for us is that we have to prepare our own heart with the truth of the gospel. And I think it has to happen this way. We are in daily need of the gospel ourselves. We often think that when you become a Christian, you've heard the gospel, you receive Christ, and that's it. As if the gospel is no longer relevant to you. Actually, we need to be reminded Every single day, we have to remind ourselves that we have been set free by God's grace. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves every single day. That's part of the preparation. Because it reminds us this, is that I'm not saved by how well I did today or how obedient I was to God's commands. I'm saved by God's grace. And so I need to hear that reminder myself for my own heart every single day, is that I'm saved by God's grace through faith. But then it must go to this, it must go another step, is that I must be prepared to share that with others as well. And that is that we must be preparing our minds with the truth that set us free to take that to others. And actually that we're to ask the Lord for boldness and strength and the opportunity. And that is exactly what Paul asks for of the church in verses 18 through 20. Pray for me that I may be bold to share and proclaim the gospel. So not only do we have to preach the gospel to ourselves as part of that preparation, reminding that we've been set free by God's grace, but then we need to be asking the Lord to help us move forward to share that liberating news, the only liberating news that we will ever hear. He goes on to say, "...in all circumstances take up the shield of faith." With This is verse 16. With which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. It's a wonderful picture. The shield that would have been 
relevant during Paul's time, and he seems to be using the imagery that would have been apparent or been known at that time is is a large shield. In fact, he uses a word for a large shield. You could think of a door. It was about four feet high and two feet wide. It could cover the majority of a person's body. It was strapped with leather and reinforced on the top and bottom with metal straps. And it would be dipped in water. And so that when the flaming arrows from the enemy would come, it would extinguish those flaming arrows immediately. So that's, that's, that's the imagery that you can picture. And he uses that here. But there's also the Old Testament imagery, which is throughout the whole entire Old Testament, and that is this, is that God, our, God himself is our shield. When he appears to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 1, he says, I am your shield. Abraham wasn't in some sort of battle at that point. He was in a spiritual battle. Looking forward to the city that has its foundations not built here on earth. And so that shield is God himself. But I want you to notice this, is that it, it does teach us the reality of Satan. Notice how it describes him. The imagery of Satan's attack. Satan's attack is one of flaming arrows or flaming darts. So the first thing we have to note is it's a real attack. And it's described by devastating imagery. The flaming arrow was was an amazing tactic of war. Because you didn't have to get close to your enemy. You could just simply wipe out a massive group of people with the archers. And the, the, the flames coming would create ultimate devastation. They don't have to get in close with the archer, do they? Archers were in many ways uh, chaotic snipers, if you will. And it would kill people. That's the imagery that God tells us, the imagery that God uses to describe Satan's attack upon us. That he does it in somewhat of a cowardly way, that it's not facing you mano a mano, but rather he stands from a distance and strikes at you with this flaming arrow that will cause maximum damage. What is this referring to? Many see this as Satan's influence on our minds. And what we're told here and have to realize is that we are defenseless apart from the shield of faith. problem we all have is what goes on in our head. Every single one of us struggles with things where we go, oh, why did I think that? How do I deal with the thoughts that flood my mind? How do I deal with those things? Well, Paul's telling us here it's the shield of faith. But you have to ask yourself in a very practical way, do you allow those thoughts to take root in your mind? Do you allow those thoughts to be how you act? 
How do we deal with them? Do we dwell on them? Do they become something that entices us? And there's something about the, this is that we have to understand is we can't actually always blame Satan for this, can we? You remember Flip Wilson? We can't always say that, that the devil made me do it. So in other words, actually, we can blame ourselves for the thoughts that go on in our minds through memories, situations that we recollect, or things that we put before our eyes. That's what the psalmist says in Psalm 101, verse 3. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. But notice what he says. I'm not going to put anything before my eyes, anything. He clarifies that and qualifies what anything is. I'm not going to put anything before my eyes that is worthless. Now, how, how do we know what is worthless? How do we, how do we know what we shouldn't put before our eyes? Well, the, the truth of the matter is you know. You should know. Paul simply asks this question in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Excuse me, it's not a question. He makes a statement. Is it profitable for me? Should I put this before my eyes? Will this profit me in some way? You see, we can do damage to ourselves, and when we do damage to ourselves, all that we're doing is we're taking our shield and putting it on the ground and saying, I don't need it. Actually, the practice of not putting anything worthless before our eyes, our ears, is actually taking up the shield of faith. So part of the shield of faith must contain the idea of taking up those things that are righteous and fleeing those things that are not. Asking the simple question, will this do harm to my soul? That's your answer. Should I watch this? Should I see this? Should I listen to this? Will this do harm to my soul? Paul goes on to say from there of the shield of faith in verse 17 and take the helmet of salvation and this imagery once again it comes from Isaiah in Isaiah 59 in verse 17 where we read this we've already read this portion of the verse he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head it's the picture of God, the divine warrior. And so what is this idea of Tate putting on the helmet of salvation? It's this simple. If, that if you have trusted in Christ, you've been saved. In fact, we're told this. Paul emphasizes this in chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians. And this is what he tells us. Chapter 2 and verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, 
we were made alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Why does Paul remind them of that? In verse 9, or verse 8, excuse me, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, for this is not your doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The helmet of salvation is the emphasis that we have been saved, that we have been rescued, and that we're no longer part of the present darkness of this world. We live in this world, but we're not of this world. We have been rescued out of it. That is the helmet of salvation. What does it look like to put that on? It's a reminder that we're saved, that we don't act like the world. And we're not of the world. But as soon as we want to take off that helmet is when we start to embrace this world and the things of the world and begin to live for those things rather than keeping on the helmet of salvation. And finally, Paul moves into the sword of the Spirit, which he divine, uh, defines very clearly for us as the Word of God. Isaiah 11, verse 4 says this, But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. The word of God is the rod of his mouth. It is a sword of the Spirit. The sword here is a short sword that was used for close hand-to-hand combat. So what is our defense against the enemy? Well, our defense and our offense against the enemy is God's word. Just consider what Jesus told his disciples as he was going to go to be crucified. In John chapter 15, in verse 26, Jesus says this, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. So Jesus is saying, I'm sending you the Spirit to give you the Word of God. Why? Why does he give and equip the disciples with the Word of God? Well, verse, chapter 16, verse 1, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. Why? Because we're in a battle. Verse 2, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm giving you the word for the battle that you're about ready to face. And What did the disciples do? Uh, Led by the Holy Spirit, they wrote it down in a book, and they gave it to us. Would you go into battle without your sword? That's the question before us. If you had to go into a physical battle, would you, and the only weapon you were given was a sword, would you forget it? I thought it was ironic the day that we taught this, the day prior to that I had 
taken my Bible home, this Bible, to study, and I got here and realized I didn't bring my Bible with me. It was a poignant reminder of how we need the sword of the Spirit with us always. You consider Jesus' own example in Matthew chapter 4, when he's led there by the Spirit into the wilderness, and Satan comes to tempt him. What does Jesus do? Jesus three times says, It is written. Jesus takes the word of God to dispel the enemy. He recited scripture. And the beauty of the interaction between Jesus and Satan is when Satan tried to twist scripture, what does Jesus do? He comes back with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Now Isaiah tells us that Jesus was taught by his Father every morning and every evening to know the Word of God. The Spirit teaches us the Word of God, but we have to pick it up and read. We have to pick it up and study. And the best means for that is the means that God designed, which is in a community. What is that community, you ask? It's the church. Where we do this together, we learn the Word of God. How well do we know the Word of God? Is the Word important to us? Is it a priority to us? We have to understand that it is actually essential to our lives, and it is the very means that God gives us to help us with the current struggles and battle that we find ourselves in right now. Consider what the psalmist says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. It's the word of God when we're in the wilderness of temptation. This is the armor of God that He gives us, He supplies with us, so that we may stand. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. How do I do that? Well, God provides you the resources. He gives you this description of what these resources are for us. So we are told this is armor from God, it is supplied by God, but we're told that we need to put it on just like we're told that we need to put on the new self. I just want you to notice how Paul concludes all of this description of this is what you need to do. Then he concludes by saying, using language that's no longer of warfare, but it's this way. He says in verse 18, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. In other words, what we're to be doing is we are to be praying for one another as we're in this battle together. That's part of it. He says in verse 19, and also for me, now pause. I think Paul's the bravest man that I will meet in eternity. But think about all the places he went on his three missionary journeys and how he boldly would go places and get beaten for it. He would get up the next day and go into the next town and he would share the gospel. Paul was incredibly bold and courageous. 
But if we for one second thought it was because of Paul, Paul would very quickly correct us and say it was only for God's grace that he could go into the nations proclaiming the gospel. Paul continually prayed for boldness, prayed for courage, because Paul himself was not bold or courageous. It was by God's grace and in the empowerment of the Spirit. This is why Paul says we are to pray for one another, and this is why Paul himself asked for prayer. He says this, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. The guy's asking for words to proclaim the gospel. Paul wrote down what the gospel is. He wrote 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament, not counting Hebrews. And he's asking for words? This is a guy I don't think would need words, but he's saying, I need words. By God's grace, the Spirit to work in my life to give me the words to proclaim boldly. If Paul is asking for that help, who are we to think that we don't need it? He says, For which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is a guy in chains, bound to a Roman soldier, doesn't know whether he's going to live or die. He'll be let free on this imprisonment, but he'll be imprisoned again and he will be executed. And a guy that's in chains doesn't say that the soldier is his enemy. The guy that's in chains and has been beaten by every tribe and every nation says, those people aren't my enemy. There's an evil darkness surrounding us and that's the enemy that's the same enemy we face right now Paul instructs us what we need to do pray for boldness pray for courage pray for the words to proclaim the gospel message the gospel that led to Paul's imprisonment that led to Paul's death You know, I think that because in the Christian world we're so familiar with this passage of Scripture that we often forget to recognize its incredible relevance and importance for our daily life, that we are called to daily put on this armor. And here's what we have to understand. We as saints are under attack. And we're given the Word. We're given the Spirit. And we are called as saints to tap into that through prayer. That we are called to put this armor on for the battle that is raging in around us. Let us put on the full armor of God and stand firm in the day of evil. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel truth that sets us free. We thank you that we who have been set free by your grace and your mercy, that you have also given us full armor for the task at hand. Our blessed Savior has called us to proclaim the gospel to all nations. But we cannot do this in our own strength. We cannot do this in our own might. 
We can only do it by your grace and mercy. So we plead and pray that we would be a church that is bold, that we would be courageous, that we would recognize the battle at hand, and that by your mercy we would put on this armor that you have given us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please stand as we sing our closing.